0: Rush in where angels fear to tread. There's a line from a poem out of the early 1700s, which has taken on a kind of a, of a proverb status. And it's true, you know. Uh, fools will run into places where even angels are afraid to go. And that's even biblical. It's said in a different way in the scriptures, but it amounts to the same thing. And so I have a of a kind of a challenge for uh, the young people that are here today. I mean, college age or under. And I want you to listen to all the guidelines so you won't be disqualified. But if you can locate the passage I'm talking about in the Bible, the one that means about the same thing as fools rush in where angels fear to tread, I'll have something for you next week. It'll be a small thing, but it'll be yours if you can find a text. And you'll have to wait until next week because I don't want you searching for it during this service. Uh, That's not what this is about. And if if you do, I'm going to see you, and the deal is off. Now, to make it even uh, more better, (laughs) if you ask me after the service, I'll tell you what part of the Bible it's in. Hey, I'll even tell you what book it's in, and it's a short book. Fools rush in where angels fear to tread, and although that proverb is true, not every dangerous place we might go makes us fools if we go there, sometimes into the dangerous places we must go, and this is, I think, one of those times Now, I trust that you're not going to think me foolish for going there, but we are going to begin this morning by jumping right into the middle of a controversy which has been going on in the church for years, and I don't see it ending any time soon. Now, people outside of the church have similar questions, but where we're going to begin this morning is a specifically Christian concept to this particular philosophical question. And and although it is a controversial topic, I really don't intend to be controversial as I talk about it. I fully believe that Christians can disagree on certain ideas and still love one another. You know, the unity that Christ desires for his church is not a uniformity where everyone must believe exactly the same thing to the exact same degree, but it's a unity that comes from love where even when we disagree with one another, we still love each other. Now, some things, uh, we believe, of course, are essential, and there can be no deviance from them, things like the virgin birth and deity of Christ, the inerrancy of Scripture, uh, the fallen state of humankind, and our absolute inability to help ourselves so that we need a Savior to die for our sins, the bodily resurrection a future return of Christ, and among other things, are non-negotiable items, but there are secondary matters, not unimportant, you understand but things where the Scripture can be interpreted in different ways. Now, what's really, truly amazing and and surprising to many people, too, who have listened uh, to the enemies of our faith, is just how few in number those kinds of things really are, at least for those who believe the Bible. And I've used this illustration before. I hope you're not tired of it because I'm going to use it again. I think it's so helpful. And, and so if I take this hand and I hold it up, and that's a circle, right? And I take everything that we at Y Bible Church believe and put it in that circle. And this hand represents another ch- uh, circle, and it represents everything that a Bible-believing church, whether it's Presbyterian or Methodist, or I don't care what it is, if, if we put everything they believe in that circle there, As long as it's Bible-believing, we find that when we bring them together, there's almost complete overlap. There's just a little bit of difference on the outside edges. We agree on almost all things, but there are some things that we don't agree on. And it's sad to me and to many others that such things have, in times past, been the source of dissension between believers, but they never really should be. And then, too, though we're starting here, it's necessary, I believe, because of our text today. We're not going to end there, nor is it really um, the main point of what we have to say. But I've been around long enough to know that if I don't address this idea as we go through our text, at least in some manner, there will be people who will be distracted by it. And so it's better just to kind of get it out in the open and deal with it as we talk about the text. The controversy concerns what we might call individual human destiny and life events and how all of that comes about. Some people believe that everything that happens uh, happens exactly according to God's will and nothing happens except by his will. Uh, You might say, uh, you might put it this way, that, that he's written the play... And we have no choice but to act it out, and there is no ad living in any of the scenes. All of the events of life are also preordained. Even whether a person puts his or her trust in Christ is God's choice, not theirs. Now, others believe that God always wants good but it was his will to create a world where real events will unfold and real choices are made and so things happen which he does not want to happen but which he allows uh, all a part of his overall plan he, he designed a world where people could even say no to him reject him and spurn his love now People in the first group are sometimes called Calvinists or Reformed. And those in the second group don't really have a name. Uh, but they're often referred to, uh, mostly by people in the first group, using a term uh, that has become kind of pejorative. That is, a, a kind of a term of criticism. Uh, they call them Arminianists. And, and as a point of interest, that's after a man by the name of Jacobus Arminianus. Now, I have to tell you something. Often when I'm in a position where I need to address this topic, I try to do so kind of from a neutral place so that no one really necessarily knows which side I fall on. But to talk about this passage and the time given us to us to this day, I find it necessary to simply address it from one side. So I have to tell you, I'm among that second group of people. And I'm going to talk about this Passage from that theological understanding. Now, I respect people in the first group. I just disagree with them, but we still love each other. They will, however, I have to tell you, have absolutely no trouble in understanding this passage according to their particular theological understanding. In fact, it's one of those passages that they would point to to support their position. And so, they will need much less explanation than people on the other side. Now, years ago, a man I know, a, a really a good guy, um, but a man of, well, strong opinion, uh, wanted to engage me in this debate, and the truth of the matter is I knew it was going to get testy, and um, so I declined, I said to him, you know, you know what I believe, and, and I know what you believe and um, neither of us is likely to change our position. And I value friendship, and I, I really don't want to do anything that's going to harm that. And he kind of smiled at me, and he nodded his assent. And then he said something to me that I will never forget. He said, you know, Larry, it means so much to me that Christ died for my sins. He didn't necessarily die for the sins of the guy down the street. insight into his heart at least if not into those of all people who believe like he did for him that understanding of predestination made christ's love personal it made it real to him and i would never want to take that away from anyone for me on the other hand i see god's love as so amazing so pure so bright because he loved me And he died for me, even though I might have turned away from him. And for me, such love is real and personal, and it's powerful. And you wouldn't want to take that away from me, would you? Now, now all of this is so that we will all start off, at least I, I hope, in the same place. We've been making our way through the book of Romans, and we've come to a place nearing the end of chapter 8, and I want you to join me once again in chapter 8 of Romans, verses 28 through 30. Of course, it'll be up, I think, on the screen on either side of us, at least I hope, and Paul is addressing uh, Christians in Rome whom he's never met. And the context is one which acknowledges that sometimes suffering comes into the life of the believer. And so Paul's putting that suffering into the right perspective, the Christian understanding, which is that of eternity. Now, we're going to skip verse 28 for now and come back to it later because it really is a kind of lead up to what Paul says in the beginning of verse 29, which is his main point. And what Paul tells us there in verse 29 is just what God's plan is for every single follower of Christ, whether male or female, young or old, new to the faith, or those who've walked with Christ for a long time. God's intention for you and I, if we have put our faith in Christ, is that we should be made like him verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now those two ideas that God foreknew and that he predestined are the source of much discussion in theological circles. And so we're going to talk about them, and not in the depth that maybe we could or should, but, but with this idea of understanding what they mean to us in this present context. And the most obvious thing we see here is that God intends for you, Christian, to be made like his son. Another way to put it is God's will for each believer is to be conformed to the image of his son. So we don't know the path that a person will take or what they'll do in life or the kinds of things which can happen to them. That part of God's will, we just don't know. But we know when all is said and done, the believer will be like Jesus. That's his or her destiny. Being conformed to the image of Jesus doesn't mean we will be exactly like him. We won't be a kind of a, of a photocopy. It means each person will be a representation of him in a way that's unique, in the way that God intends. You see, we will all love good because it's good just as God does, and we'll be all alike and yet different. And you're familiar with this here in this church because we mention it often. It's just like our church. I mean, being a local expression of the universal church. universal church is all believers throughout time. And yet we here, right here, why Bible Church? We are Christ's church. But there are others that are too. Others that are a local expression of his body. And they're the same as us, and yet they're different. Or or we might think of it this way, as God is an artist, and each one of us is a a canvas on which he captures uh, an aspect of his son. Every evening sky is an evening sky. Everyone is beautiful in its own way and different from every other one that has ever gone on before. You see, Jesus is just so big that it takes many people bearing his image to begin to reflect his glory. We're predestined for that, to be made like Jesus and yet to be an individual person that God made us to be. Now, there are three more comments to make on this idea of predestination. One of them is an observation. And the next leads us into a discussion of that other concept we mentioned, that of foreknowledge. And the final one tells us God's purpose for this predestination of the believer. So the observation is what the text does not say here. You see, it's not saying we're predestined to heaven. It does tell us the believer is predestined to become like Christ. Now, of course, if you're like Christ, you're going to be in heaven. But the text is only telling us what happens to someone once they put their faith in Christ. The one thing we can absolutely say from this text is that if you have put your faith in Christ, you will be made like him. I think that ought to be pretty good news to you if you're a Christian. No matter which side of that theological issue you're on, God is at work making you like His Son. And oh, how glad I am that He's true for me. The second comment to make, which leads us uh, back toward that Christian debate we mentioned earlier, is this. The ones who God predestines to be made like his son are all of those he foreknows. And that raises the question, just what does that mean, that God foreknows? Well, foreknowledge means knowing things before they happen in our time. It means knowing them before we can know them because they haven't happened. God knows the end from the beginning. He knows everything which will happen, and he knows when it will happen, again, when it will happen in our time. And I can say it that way, and I need to say it that way, because God does not experience time the way we do. God's not trapped in time as we are. We experience time like we experience a parade. We stand on one spot, on the street, and the parade passes by us, and we see it one part at a time, and that's the way we experience time. But God's not in time. he's it's like he's way up high. He's above the parade, and he sees the whole thing at once, knowing every part of it at once. Now I have to tell you that Christians on both sides of the debate believe what we've been talking about. That God doesn't need to that as God's foreknowledge. The difference in understanding comes in how that foreknowledge works, how it affects our world. The one group says that God's foreknowledge determines the event. He not only knows it will happen, but he causes it to happen. The other group, however, says that God's foreknowledge is not causing. I mean, he knows everything before it happens, but his knowing does not cause the thing to happen. For example, God knew the Holocaust would happen, but he didn't cause it. Man's own sin brought that about. What that means is that our choices are just that, our choices. The choices we make are ours, and they are real. And they are just as real as if God did not, not know what it was you would choose. His knowing doesn't cause the choice. It's no one will ever stand before God and say, you knew what I was going to do before I did it, so I couldn't do anything other than what I did. And God's going to say, no, you did choose. You did that thing, or you did not do that thing because you decided to do it or not do it. My knowing it didn't determine you know, I teach cubbies uh, on Awana Wednesday nights. third are three- or four-year-olds, right? And, and then I, 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 several times a month I go down to Little Lamb and I, I teach the kids. So I've gotten to know a lot of these kids pretty good. And, and uh, they feel comfortable around me. And they'll come up to me and they'll talk to me. And sometimes I'll know one of them has a birthday. And, and I'll say, well, how old are you? And they'll tell me, say, five years old, right? And I said, okay, so are you this many? And they say, yeah, I'm that many. And so then I play a little trick on them and I say, are you this many? <laughs> right? And and I already know before they say anything what they're going to say. They're going to say, no, I'm not that many. <laughs> it's just, it's not it's not me causing it. I knew it ahead of time, but my knowing it didn't cause that. Or, or when I was a young man in college, first starting out, I, I, I took in a stray cat in the fall of beginning of the year, you know, and, and at Christmas time, I set up this Christmas tree and put ornaments on it, and the cat wanted to play with the ornaments. Well, I'd yell at it, and she got to the idea that that didn't make me happy, and she would not touch that tree all day long, whether I was there or not. she followed me in the bedroom at night. She'd watch me get undressed, get into bed, and when i turn off that light, I knew it was going to happen. As soon as I turned off that light, she turned around and shot like an arrow back to that tree and started attacking the ornaments, right? So I knew it was going to happen, but it didn't cause it to happen just because I knew it. So, of course, my knowledge is based on experience. It's not true for knowledge like God has. I mean, one day, some kid might be kind of a math guy, you know, and he might say, oh, yeah, that's right, I am that old, right? Or or that cat could have got distracted by a mouse and played with that all night, never gone to the to that tree at all. I wouldn't know those kinds of things ahead of time. But God's foreknowledge, it's real. Because he sees it happening right before him. Now the final comment we need to make on this idea of predestination is to note God's purpose for it. And that is to make us real members of his family. Verse 29 again. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. God's purpose for us is that we become in heart and soul and mind and will his children, brothers and sisters in Christ, where Jesus is preeminent. That's what firstborn means. Now, there's a story by C.S. Lewis, uh, the first one I ever heard uh, in the Narnia Tales, called The Horse and His Boy. And there are other stories like it, you might be aware of, uh, which tells the story of uh, the son of a king who was lost at birth and was later restored to his father. In that particular story, the boy grew up in a fisherman's hut, raised by a cruel and, and hard man, and was made to work like a slave. But he really was the king. And when he was restored to his father, he could no longer act like a slave. He had to become what he really was. And the process had begun, which would make him, in heart and soul, a child of the king. And that's what God does for us. You see, God does not merely forgive us all of our sins, as wonderful as that is. He does not simply deliver us from death and hell, that we are so glad that he does. He brings us into his family and into his home. He makes us belong, and how wonderful is that to belong? He changes us. He predestines us to be made like his Son, so that now heaven is our home and God is our father and Christ is our elder brother. And frankly, for us now, the way we are, Nothing else will do. So he knew. Before we knew ourselves, he knew us. He knew we would respond to the gospel and put our faith in Christ. And and all those who do, he predestines to be made like his son, Jesus. verse 30 shows how that process, I think, fits at least a little bit into time. So we read there and those he predestined he also called and those he called he also justified and those he justified he also glorified. So you see if you're predestined to be made like his son like his son it's because he called you. Right? But I want to be clear about this. God calls everyone. And I'm going to tell you something else if you don't know it. Both sides of that debate acknowledge his truth. They just understand it. Don't have time to go into those differences but for our purposes it's enough to know that God calls us and, and so it's not though, just that he called because he calls everyone though if he didn't call you you know you would never give him a thought you, you need to understand that but what's important is that you respond to that call see when you respond to his call he justifies you that is, he makes you right. He makes you as though you've never sinned. Like that old, simple, and yet elegant definition of justified, justified, never sinned. And tying it all back up into eternity, God glorifies us. Now, that hasn't happened yet in our time, but but the God had already is. Now, there are just a couple of last items that we need to tie up before we can close today. You, you remember toward the beginning of our time together this morning, I said that we were going to skip over verse 28 and come back to it later. And the reason we were doing that is that verse 28 really led into verse 29, and and, and that was uh, that, that is about the believer being predestined to be made like Christ. And that's the real point of what Paul's saying here. But what I want to do is I just want to touch on verse 28 with the understanding that we will, by God's grace, come back to it next week. Verse 28 says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. See, God's purpose for those who have responded to his call, to those who, as this verse says, love God, is that we become like his Son. And everything which happens in this life, whether good or bad, God makes work toward that end for the purpose of making us like his son. Now, now I've mentioned this verse before, which God intends that it should bring hope to people. Uh, I've mentioned that it is sometimes and really far too often misunderstood and misapplied. So we're going to come back to it talk about it in more detail next week. But the things we go through in this life, God uses them to accomplish that purpose of making us like his son. Now, the next thing we need to do, I think, is to answer, at least partly answer the question, why is it important? Why is it important for us to know that God knew us before we knew him? Well, I think, first of all, because it's the truth. And knowing the truth sets you free. It brings responsibility with it, knowing the truth does, but it will free you, especially as you face that responsibility. And then, too, it's a reminder that God knows everything. Nothing catches him by surprise. Nothing in this life comes to us which he did not know would happen. But he also knows how he will use those things for good. And it's a good which will resound throughout eternity. And finally, you know, he knows us. He knows us inside and out. He knows us better than anyone else knows us. He knows us more completely Still, he called us. And if we respond, he will, in spite of it all, make us like his son. You know, God knows every dumb thing I have ever done, and I'm telling you the list is long. But he called me, and I've come. And I as little and needy broken as I am, I am on my way to becoming like Jesus Christ. So if you're sitting there and you're wondering if you're predestined to become like Christ, you need to stop wondering. You need to understand that he has called you or that he is calling you and that is a certain And you need to ask yourself the question, have I responded to that call, or am I willing to? Now, if you've responded in faith, believing Christ has died for your sins and rose again from the dead, then God has predestined you to be made like his son and all that that means to you. And you'll be able to face up the responsibility which is before you to cooperate with God in his work. Or maybe you're sitting there now and, and you, Ready, And you can respond right now, right where you're sitting, in the quietness of your own heart. And if you do that, God will make you his, and you will belong to him. And all that that means, you will belong to him forever. And I want to say something to you. If you do respond while you're sitting there, I want you to tell me or tell someone who you know walks with Christ so we can help you on the way. You see, this is just... The start of the journey and there are three great powerful enemies who want to ruin you. But God in his wisdom will provide you with those to help you on your way so you can overcome. And then maybe you're sitting there and you're hearing the call. You know something is stirring inside of your heart. And you're feeling the weight of your sin No, things should not they cannot go on as they have but you you still have questions well for you there will be some men standing right over here in this corner and you can go and talk to them or you can come and talk with me and we'll help you to come to the God who wants to save you who loves you enough that he sent his son to die in your place so let me say this to Hearing his voice today, then come. Don't delay. Come. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. They